Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time because the time is urgent. We need advanced technologies and advanced abilities for being able to help us navigate these times. You are going to meet somebody who has been predicting earthquakes for many, many years. It is true that earthquakes can be predicted. Don't believe people that tell you that they can't. Jim Berklin is here who has been a geologist for many, many years. He's a 50-year fellow with the Geological Society. He has breakthrough information for you. Please listen and welcome Jim Berkland to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Uh, thank you for, for that great introduction. And this is a critical time, such as I have not felt since uh, October of uh, 1989 when I predicted the World Series quake in the newspaper and named it. Uh, we are having similar period from the sun and moon lining up uh, at the time of the full moon. This is called the worm moon, the full moon of uh, March. And it's less than one hour away from the time of the closest approach to the moon that we will see until the year 2016, when in November of that year the moon will be even a little bit closer. So, And then the next day we have the, the equinox, is the opening day of spring. So three major tide-raising factors lining up sun, moon, and earth, that's called syzygy, new or full moon, nearness of the moon, which is perigee, and then there's an equinoctial tide at the time of the equinoxes. So you put them all together in the same 24-hour period, and we expect extremely high tides. Now, they're not necessarily always expressed by ocean tide maximum periods, but earth tide, the solid earth moves up and down about three feet under the full moon. And that affects groundwater and fluids in the in the earth, such as magma, and oil. And these times, for example, the only thing holding a fault together is friction. And it takes a certain amount of time between slippages of fault, uh, depending upon how active the fault is to begin with. It may be you know a couple hundred years between major failures, or maybe just like around uh, the geysers and Yellowstone, where the quakes are happening all the time because of movement of steam and fluids in the subsurface. But it turns out that so many of the larger quakes occur at predictable times. Now, in Southern California, I was born in 1930. My folks moved us back to Iowa for, to see the folks uh, in 1933, just before the Long Beach earthquake, which was devastating down there. And and the records now indicate there could have been 30,000 school kids killed had the quake occurred not at quarter to six at night, but about two in the afternoon when all those old buildings, weak buildings, collapsed on them. Well, that was on the day of an eclipse of the moon. And the next big quake in Southern California was in lost in, long, in um, San Fernando, you know, February 9th of 1971. That was on the day of the eclipse of the moon. Now, was that San Fernando or San Francisco? San Fernando, okay. 1971. And uh, so that was also on the day of the eclipse of the moon. Uh, the biggest quake in North America that we know about was the 9.2 Alaskan quake in March 27, 1964, on the day of the full moon. And then the next big uh, tsunami and uh, the 9-point magnitude quake uh, the next one after 64 was 2004 in the Indian Ocean. And that was on the day after Christmas. And guess what? Day of the full moon. The biggest quake in the Yellowstone area was on the day of the full moon. The biggest quake in the Tehachapi area 
uh, the last century was uh, the, uh, the Kern County quake, 7.7 on the day of the new moon. And one would see a pattern if you keep looking at these things. And my colleagues are getting all their truth out of black boxes and believing implicitly in them because their professor told them the same thing. Earthquakes cannot be predicted. They are random events. Well, I had to unlearn that when I found out what's really going on. And not only that, the animals are aware before large quakes especially. And I'm getting more and more concerned about what I hear around Los Angeles area. Uh, at, uh, at Malibu in December, this very rare fish, eel-like fish about 12 feet long, washed up on the beach alive. And the people were, was, what is this? Well, they normally live down, they're called an oar fish. They live down about a mile deep under the ocean. This was on the beach. And a little boy, an eight-year-old boy, came up and identified it. That's an oar fish. My teacher says, no, she saw pictures of it. Well, anyway, an oar fish, if you go to Google and look it up, you see the Japanese called it an earthquake fish, and there were oar fish uh, beached in near, near uh, Japan last year, and it was highlighted in the, in the headlines, does this mean a big earthquake for Japan? Um, you have uh, massive schools of fish coming into shore and beaching themselves like whales and dolphins, as they did before the World Series quake and did just before the great Indian Ocean quake. Well, we had this massive fish kill at Redondo Beach here about two weeks ago. All these fish filled up the, boat, the boats. They could, the boat, it was so thick with fish, they could hardly move the boats. And they all died, and I guess they were turned up in uh, recycling or somewhere. But the fish died, and we were told, well, they were probably frightened and scared in by a scavenger or by a, sharks or something, baloney. Um, and then we just heard about uh, massive uh, fish came in by uh, Acapulco. And they were out scooping them up and uh, harvesting them. Very unusual situation. And then we heard about a very unusual thing off San Diego. The whale watchers here this last week are surprised to see a couple of dozen sperm whales, very rare sperm whales, all around the boat. And they'd never seen such a pod of whales in history. Uh, and... Uh, so it goes on and on and on. And so if you see a strange animal behavior, uh, lost dogs and cats. Before the World Series quake, uh, I'd been monitoring this lost and found animals in the local paper, the Mercury News, for uh, since 1979 when a physicist with Xerox acquainted me with the fact that the lost and found column lengthened just before local quakes. I almost, I almost hung up on him because at that time I was dealing mainly with tides. And it suddenly, hit, as I was talking to him, I suddenly realized that our cat, Rocky, had disappeared six days before a 5.9 quake at Gilroy, the strongest quake in the Bay Area uh, since uh, uh, 1911. And uh, so I, then I listened to much more carefully to this, to this, from this physicist, from, physicist from Xerox uh, because he said the missing cat ads went up. And sure enough, before that seven, four, that uh, 5.9 quake at Gilroy, um, they had 12 missing cat ads instead of the usual three or four. And that's when I realized our cat, Rocky, had disappeared six days before that same quake. Jim, can you explain a couple of parts of this just to bring us into your level of knowledge? Is this from the magnetic field changes? You got it. You got it. And the, this physicist thought it was the change in gravity. 
but there was no real mechanism. How did they detect this? Now we know that animals, including bacteria, homing pigeons, whales, sharks, salmon, uh, European robins, and I used to raise homing pigeons, they all have the mineral magnetite in their bodies that they grow as a significant part. Uh, they use it for navigation. And when I raised homing pigeons, and I, I'm sitting in the same property that I was raised in, and in the uh, early, in the 40s, I had pit homing pigeons here, and I took a couple in a knapsack and to the top of the mountain about three miles away, and I told my sister, uh, I'm going to let them go at 2 o'clock, see what time they get back. Well, they took their time, because instead of flying straight home, like I could see our house off in the distance, they circled and circled and circled, as they do when they release a, a bunch of pigeons at a sporting event or something. They, they circle and circle four or five or times and maybe more, and then they split off into different directions as they head for their home loft. But it was always a mystery until about 30 years ago when they found the mineral magnetite behind the pigeons' eyeballs. And why would they circle? Because we have a magnetic field circling the Earth. And that's where the aurora borealis lines come down from the pole, the magnetic poles. And uh, so if you have a magnetic material in your body, like the pigeons do, and you circle around in a magnetic field, you generate, uh, you, it's a microgenerator. It actually creates electrical fields. And their little brain and tells them which direction is north, and then through their past knowledge, they know which direction to fly to their home loft. And before earthquakes, many pigeons cannot find their way home. They'll sit down in a park or a schoolyard or something and wait for things to settle down. And I used to deal closely with the pigeon industry, and I, they would call me and they'd say, oh, I guess we won't have our pigeon race, or we will keep back our best birds. And they were always quite appreciative to know about what the upcoming quakes were going to be in their flight pattern. So, but whales, as they say, there's a, about any animal or critter you'd look for. And then I became acquainted with, since 1982, when a gal called me from New, Zealand, New Brunswick, Canada, where they just had the strongest quake in in 126 years, next to the Bay of Fundy, uh, where there were 50-foot tides, extremely high tides, on the day of an eclipse of the moon. And so this gal heard me on the radio station back there, and she said, maybe you have an explanation for what happened to me, because I'd talked about animals and birds and, and uh, critters of various kinds. She said, three days before that quake, the first quake I ever felt in my life, I got this terrible headache, and it was just, I was living on aspirin, it was... Uh, the night before the quake, in the, morning, in the next morning, that, that night I couldn't. I had to go to bed early. And next morning I tried to get up early, and I just ter felt terrible. And all of a sudden, the pain and pressure disappeared, and within a, uh, half an hour, the first tremors hit. Is that just coincidence? And I thought, hmm, she had a, she's got some special gift. Well, since that time, I have learned of at least 20 other people that had that same gift. Interestingly, 19 of these people were female. And only one man admitted to this ability, which a lot of people are, they may know about it, but they might not even discuss it with their family. But it's important to get that information out because that's how we all can learn. But Jim, we all have magnetite in us too, right? Yes, and guess where it is? The pineal gland? Pineal gland. It's in the middle of the forehead, right where the Indian ladies paint that red spot. We have had a sense of direction, but most of us modern people have lost that ability or the understanding of it. But some people just have this particular closeness to the, the pineal gland uh, that it can give pain. But in each case, 
that I've been aware of, that's usually two or three days in advance of the quake. They get the terrible headache and the pain and pressure in the brain. And just uh, in the last, within an hour of the quake itself, the pain and pressure disappear. Can you explain one part of this, though? I'm sorry to interrupt you because I really want to let you go completely to town with this. But when people are experiencing these symptoms before the quakes happen, is it that there's a change in the magnetic field? What happens that's producing this feeling in us or these signs? Well, part of it is it's you, almost invariably it's a quake that the people themselves feel. So they're not getting headaches because of a quake in Japan here. Uh, there may be some somebody that says, yes, they do too, but I haven't seen that for sure. But um, we do know that prior to quakes, the, there's great stress in the Earth's crust. And the most very common accessory mineral in almost every kind of rock is magnetite. And so if you put pressure on the magnetite in the laboratory, it causes a little change in the magnetic field. And this may go over, you know, a thousand square miles in the large earthquakes. So you may have heard of earthquake lights, and they are real. What are they? Well, you get lights in the sky like Aurora, and they they started they finally when they had television pictures of them in, in Japan um, in the sixties, I guess they realized that earthquake lights just were not imaginary, and they don't occur at the time of every earthquake at all. But, you know, if it's nighttime and you see these flashing lights and it's not, uh, it's not a, a true aurora, um, but it's, the pressure has been built up and it causes a little electro, electromagnetic energy that uh, you can actually see. Now, you've been right. Fox News had you on so that you have been accurate in most of your predictions. Yeah, 75, 80 percent since 1974. And uh, the last, the book, there's a book written about me by Cal Ori. I wrote about a quarter of it to get helping with it. But she's always been interested in animals and earthquakes. And this book is entitled The Man Who Predicts Earthquakes, Jim Berkland, Maverick Geologist. And it came out in 2006, just in time for the 100th anniversary of the World Series, I mean, of the uh, Great San Francisco Earthquake. You predicted that, too, didn't you? Not the, the 06 quake, but the World Series quake, yes, indeed. And uh, that what what made me kind of infamous, unfortunately, because I had was gaining quite a bit of credibility. And then when I predicted that quake in the newspaper four days be happened, before it happened and named it the World Series quake, I said it'd be a six and a half to seven magnitude within a week, and it hit four days after my my contact with the reporter of the Gilroy Dispatch, and. Uh, so everything seemed fine for about a week, and finally there was, there was some publicity about what I'd been doing, and all of a sudden high science came down on me hard, and they wanted me fired. Nobody can predict earthquakes. You know, if we can't, then he certainly can't. What's he doing looking to the moon? Look at the ego involved in that, seriously. I, I pointed out, yes, that uh, you know about geophysics and geology, uh, the first three letters stand for Earth. And you turn them around a little bit and you get ego right out of geo. (laughs) (laughs) So your main concern is that people are building on active faults and you want to protect people. That's really driving your work, isn't it? That's a small part of it. Because active faults are rather limited. And sometimes you can be nearer the fault and have less damage from somebody uh, 50 miles away on, on saturated alluvium where it shakes longer and stronger. 
if you're close to a fault on bedrock, it just may come and go rather quickly, and, and the building doesn't have that much time to react, you know, just a few shakes. But uh, <clears throat> it's, as long as you're on uh, solid ground and a uh, well-built building, especially wood frame, they're very forgiving. And uh, But if you live in the reclaimed ground and near near the seashore you know, where it's saturated um this shakes longer and stronger so my main focus has been uh since i started this to educate people and make them aware of all the, the symptoms that are out there and all the things that mother nature has to tell us and not just ignore it um i've had oh you know, so many stories. Uh, the, um, there was a horse that was a very excellent uh, jumping horse and uh, won championship after championship and suddenly began to shy away and, and the owner was really getting troubled. What's happening? And the veterinary said, you know, this does happen occasionally. The best thing is just put him down. <laughs> well, that was about two weeks before the World Series quake. And after the World Series quake, he returned to his jumping ability and was a very fine horse. Another horse up in um, Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, the people, he was being boarded, and uh, a, a neighbor came in to show off her brand new Mercedes and parked near the corral. And the horse was just had his ears back and his eyes wide, and uh, people were just uh, the, the very biggest concern is their new Mercedes was getting covered with dust. And the horse was. They said he wasn't just whinnying; he was shrieking. And then the quake happened. And the parts of the crowd collapsed, and uh, and you know it was really uh, pretty revealing that this horse knew what was happening within the next half hour. Is this in the realm of astrophysics? How you know what you know with regard to the moon's magnetic emanations and the Earth's? No, very few astrophysicists would admit it. I'm a geologist, right? I know that, and I was raised in the country, and and willing to accept that there are some things not in the printed book. In fact, a number of things I had to unlearn from my education and just wish I had another chance to some of my students to alert them to what's really factual and not just in a printed word or what my professor said when I was being trained. So, no, I would say I'm a general geologist, but I've always been interested in astronomy and did take a course on it in uh, at college, I guess two courses. And uh, But it was not until 1974 when I realized um, that there was a relationship between maximum tides and earthquakes. And in the book about me, uh, there are 23 examples where I predicted local quakes of at least five magnitude that were main shocks, not just aftershocks of a bigger quake, which are easier to predict. You had a big quake, and then you're going to expect a lot of aftershocks. Like here in Japan, incredibly. We've had uh, about 50 quakes of uh, six magnitude or more. The normal number of sixes per, per, in, during a year is about uh, 120, maybe one every three days around the world. They've had more than 45 uh, near Japan now because of this magnitude nine that just happened. So it, uh, I'm an observer, and that's one of the most important things I, I tried to stress to people and, and in a few classes that I've talked to in the last, since I retired as a, an active geologist, uh, curiosity and willing willingness to accept 
uh, you know, something outside the box. This is definitely considered in the realm of new knowledge, and it's a tragedy that in academia there is this tendency and a gravity to perpetuate more of the same. Like you can work within the same paradigm, and if you don't, you're out. Yes, and if you happen to be accepted in your field uh, and the reporters come to you and you you, you tell them like uh, uh, that the new and full moon, the super moon coming up, has nothing to do with earthquakes because, after all, the Japanese quake occurred before. That's just limited knowledge, and they profess that they they know a lot more than they do. And I can point out that the biggest quake that we know about uh, in North America after the Alaskan quake, or well before the Alaskan quake, was was a nine magnitude, give or take. But it was in 1700, on January 26th, when uh, about a nine magnitude hit the northwest, the Cascadia Trench, and we the geologists only got into investigating that, you know, in the last uh, 50 years, but uh, because there was no recording of it here, and the Indians had had no writing, although there were legends about the great tsunami that had come in. But the Japanese had a record of it because this tsunami came in from nowhere, unannounced, uh, on the 27th of January in 1700 and killed a number of people along the seacoast. And they wondered what happened. Well, how come no quake? Well, the quake was uh, 1,800 miles away or so. And, uh, well, it turns out that it was right uh, after a strong tidal force at the new moon. And that's, I guess, maybe this uh, geologist has said there was nothing to it. He was unaware of that. But more importantly, he was unaware of they had, they had a supermoon on the 4th of January in 1700 and no giant quake that we know about. The big quake hit on the 26th of January, and then on about February 8th, uh, there was another supermoon. So the biggest earthquake in North America uh, since Alaska or that we know about, uh, there were only the two, the, the two nines we know about, uh, they, it hit between two supermoons. And so it doesn't always happen that you get the big quakes exactly at the time of the maximum tidal force. It may take a while for the Earth to uh, adjust to the, the change conditions. Like on the, on the moon, when they left seismographs on the surface, the astronauts did beginning 1969, they found there were moon quakes. And this wasn't too surprising, it was, but it was good information, and they were up to about magnitude 4.8 or so. And... Uh, so my colleagues, when I said, uh, well, I think the moon was triggering earthquakes, come on, Jim, and the moon is so much smaller than the Earth. I mean, it's not too surprising that the Earth could, uh, in its gravity, at the, uh, could trigger moonquakes. Well, it turns out most of the moonquakes occur within a day of perigee, the once every 27 and a half days that the Earth and moon are closest. So the Earth's gravity does trigger moonquakes, and science accepts that. But when I turned around and said, well, then why can't the moon trigger earthquakes? Well, the moon's so much smaller, but the moon doesn't have an active volcano currently, and it doesn't have uh, active, you know, magmatic action. And, uh, and so it's, uh, it's not too surprising. It, it, was, it was a little surprising to me that it had quakes at all in the moon. But uh, now I understand what's going on. Uh, and just realize that most of the moonquakes occur at the time of perigee, 
which was the strongest gravitational effect on the moon. You're a lone ranger where you're standing. You're standing as someone pioneering something that most people don't get, don't accept, don't want to look at, and the smart people will be listening for new knowledge. Well, thank you, and that's certainly what I've been working on. I must say that I, I was in the Great Pyramid about uh, 10 years ago, and uh, as I came out and, and saw the people after having been in the king's chamber and got all the mysteries of the earth, uh, the pyramid, you know, I suddenly flashed on me, like, what is the meaning of life? And I just suddenly realized that we are here to seek our purpose and strive to achieve it. Anything less is a waste of existence. And that's been a phrase. It just dawned on me. It just swept over me. And it made such sense that uh, I've, I've really, my life has been kind of revolving around it. And I could easily uh, just shrug off the, the critics that don't often know what they're talking about. I know that you had made a very serious prediction for the months of March and April. You also said for October of 2010, but for 2011, for the month of March and April, and you're suggesting that we are entering a very, very concerning window between March 19th and the 26th. Can you That's, talk about that? And uh, this is since uh, the most disturbing period that I've had in my experience since the window of October 14th to 21st of 1989. Then it was uh, supported by the record number of missing pet ads instead of uh, five or six missing cat ads in the Mercury News, there were 27. And instead of uh, 20 missing dog ads or so, there were 58. And so uh, then I put that together with um, the geyser slowing down. It's our normal eruption cycle and uh, Gilroy Hot Springs cooling down and slowing down as it had done before 1906 and 1952 and 1979. You have to pay attention to history or your history. <laughs> Talk about this window. What's happening during okay. this window? I'm not so much concerned at this point about the Bay Area, but in Southern California in the Northwest. Now we know about the massive fish kill down there at the Redondo Beach. Yes. You know, there was a million fish swept in, and we're told that it was from predators attacked them, and that's so ridiculous. <laughs> uh, that, uh, And then we just had the... Uh, that. In December, we had the um, Orfish, the earthquake predictor, sweep up at uh, Malibu. And um, we had this, this great sighting of, of whales off of San Diego, the un unprecedented number of giant whales in one little pod because they were getting sperm whales are getting quite rare. They're endangered. But there they were all together and, and delighting the people that had never seen such a thing. And then down in, I think, I, I'm getting so many calls about these kinds of things, I'm not sure if I've told you all about it, but anyway, off uh, Acapulco, the massive uh, uh, small fish came into shore, and people were netting them and scooping them up, and uh, these did not die that I know about, but uh, they were just, the water was black with them. And uh, and so we know that oarfish fish were seen off Japan last year, and they reported, if you go to uh, Google and uh, plug in ore fish, you will see about all these harbingers of large earthquakes they were expected and they were concerned about. We do know that uh, before the Christchurch New Zealand quake, three days before that 6.3 destructive quake that so 
uh, destroyed practically are the Garden City in uh, South Island. My wife and I were there just two years ago. But uh, three days before that quake, there was a massive stranding of 107 pilot whales. They all died uh, in South New Zealand. When they die, why are they dying? Because they can't... They get totally confused. Okay. Their whole directional signals are gone. And uh, normally that's how they, they go from that. You know, the, the whales migrate down to Baja, California and have the births for the, the babies and nice warm waters and a lot of food. And then they head up back towards the Arctic Ocean and they move mostly along north-south lines. And those, the lines get disturbed before quakes, just like uh, compasses get disturbed in the Earth's magnetic field. Uh, you get aberrations in the, the northern lights and uh, south pole of southern lights. Same sort of thing. So um, it's only been in the last 30 years that they have recognized this mineral magnetite uh, in most bodies that they've analyzed. And just to go down dozens of creatures they found magnetite in, and then, and including people. In a big meeting in San Francisco in 1984, they announced the first uh, d discovery of the mineral magnetite in the human body, and there it is over the pineal gland, as you mentioned. And... Um, uh, they didn't know about the earthquakes, the uh, headaches that uh, were related to many people also at that time because the headaches were centered in the middle of the forehead, and that's where the pineal gland is, and that's where the Indian ladies paint the red spot indicating the third eye. So it seems to be a physical reason uh, for creatures to react to changes in the magnetic field that often precede large earthquakes. So what can be done now with what you know and what you've been sharing? There's this window coming up. Talk about that. Yes. Well, 29th, we'll have the full moon, the worm moon, they call it, in March. And it's less than one hour after, uh, at the, an, hour, uh, an hour before, the closest approach of the moon until the year 2016, when in November of that year, we'll have a slightly closer approach. Um, and then the next day is the, the uh, equinox, and there are equinoctial tides. So the three major tide-raising forces are almost coincident. And time after time, this has been when you have large earthquakes. And when so, you say the 29th, you mean the 29th of March? The 19th through the 26th of March. 19th through the 26th of March. Okay. That's a seismic window. And, and I've been off, of, like in that book about me, um, there's only been one quake of more than five magnitude in the San Francisco Bay area uh, since the aftershocks of the 89 quake. And that, that quake occurred in 2008, the day before Halloween, but on the very day of the maximum tidal force in about, uh, well, of the year for sure. And uh, it was the quake was 5.6, and it was very close to San Jose, and, in fact, almost exactly the same place, the huge tides occurred in, at New Year's time in, 2000, uh, in um, 1986. And I'd gone to a meeting of the, Amer the um, Peninsula Geological Society and predicted a quake of 3.5 to 5.5 magnitude for the 29th of December through uh, January 5th. And it hit right before I was going to work and shook me up in my home in San Jose and uh, shook down to Monterey and to Santa Rosa and it was widely felt. And 
I got the commendation from my old friend that used to work with the USGS. Jim will never doubt you again. That one shook me up pretty good. Well, I thought he was endangering his whole career because he had spent 35 years with the U.S. Geological Survey. Well, I only found out later he had just retired, and so he could say whatever he wanted. So he could support my theory. Do you have suggestions for what people should seriously consider yeah. who are receptive are. to your input? Sure, because this isn't just theoretical. Uh, there are many things people can do. And one thing, educate your family what earthquakes can do and what they can't do. And uh, it's not going to be houses falling into big cracks and uh, cities destroyed and that sort of thing unless you have a big tsunami. That's something else. that, that The Japanese were fully prepared for large earthquakes. Their design of the buildings and their construction was excellent. And they're just, you know, world famous for being able to handle quakes of like seven magnitude or so. But when you get a nine and get this 30, 40 foot tsunami come sweeping in and they have these seawalls that may be 15 feet high, uh, they didn't do much to stop this huge wall of water coming up. And uh, up to six miles inland, these fertile valleys and agriculture and little towns and all that just destroyed. And uh, so you could say the timing could have been predicted, but they would not have known exactly where the quake might occur. I would hope we'll start hearing about all the animals that responded. We do know about the oarfish, and, uh, but uh, before the, um, the Kobe quake, there were strange fish that came into shallow water, and the fishermen were delighted to scooping them all up and netting them. And uh, so they... Uh, People that were knowledgeable were suspicious there might be a quake coming. And then later on, they were studying the mineral waters. Uh, they were from a, a spring uh, near uh, far away, in a really nice uh, you know, spring. They were bottled waters. And somebody got the idea to check the radon content. And sure enough, over the years, the radon content had been building up before the Kobe quake. Kobe quake uh, occurred exactly one year after the Northridge quake. And when the Northridge quake hit, my whole family was down there at a family reunion for the Berklands. And I, I was there with, my, there with my double cousin, Nadine, looked at all our lifetime collection of Hummelware lining the shelves, and I said, you know, you should get some museum tape or some plastic borders there to protect those. Oh, I know I should, but she lost 90% of it two weeks later with the Northridge quake. And many people reported lights in the sky and... And, uh, of course, it was, oh, and it, it came like 4.30 in the morning on the 17th, and my window uh, ended on the 16th, at midnight on the 16th. So my critics say, well, you missed that one. Yeah, but I only missed it by four hours. And, and people that went to sleep with my window open uh, were awakened by the quake itself. Most critics aren't really producing anything. They actually oh, don't exactly. produce anything because they're not trying to solve anything. They're just standing on the sidelines throwing mud at other people's work. There's the ego factor and the fact that uh, their economy is – you imagine you go to Congress and you want to have somebody that uh, you're going to analyze the comings and goings of, of pet cats or something. Um, they get laughed off and you, your budget is suddenly reduced. Um, but there are some books out, and I uh, hope people are aware of the book by Helmut tributes called When the Snakes Awake, because he was directly affected when a great a major quake hit uh, his hometown in Friuli, Italy. 
and uh, you know his, his family survived. There were over a thousand Italians that died, and he then went and was interviewing the people, and they said, "Oh, all of our cats just disappeared a couple of days before the quake, and most of them came back. Uh, the mother cats would take their kittens out of the houses. Uh, one farmer looked for his cats, and because there were rats and mice running around his farmyard, and there were no cats to be seen, they had taken off." Uh, just as before a giant storm about to hit the Alps down there, uh, the deer would come into the villages. So without, you know, more frightened about what the storm would do than they were about the people. Well, that sort of thing happens before earthquakes very frequently, and um, it's just a matter of paying attention to it and not laughing it off, so like so many people do. So the one that's coming, you're sensing, is going to be Southern hitting... California or up around the Pacific Northwest. That's the, the major concern. And uh, you're more... In Southern California, you know, the last big one, heat magnitude, was in 1857. And that was uh, in Forte Home. And uh, it uh, was on the day of the full moon. And... Uh, the San Andreas Fault went right through a circular sheep corral, 30 feet in diameter. It turned that sheep corral into the letter S. So we know there was 30 feet of horizontal rupture on the San Andreas with that great earthquake. Um, at two inches a year, if you do the arithmetic, you'll see you've had up to 26 feet of strain built upon the San Andreas compared to the 30 feet of rupture. So we generally we figure we're pretty close to another major rupture on the San Andreas down there. And it you know, would be mostly in the Mojave and well to the east of uh, Los Angeles, but the buildings that were built under modern you know, methods uh, are relatively safe as long as they were, had solid foundations and, and, uh, and the foundations were anchored to the main structure. If the main structure is uh, a beautiful box, uh, um, but the foundations are inadequate, um, the box will move, you know, a long ways and uh, shake the uh, people and things. Have you taught other people to be able to do what you know how to do? Uh, not a, I'm a structural, not a structural engineer, but I've certainly uh, studied and went to, been to a number of meetings, and uh, some of them are aware of the factor of about tides. Uh, but mostly they're not going to talk about it in public meetings. I mean, are you privately able to teach others how they can calculate the tides to know when there's a danger zone? Well, I get every year I get a, a calendar showing the maximum tidal periods, and I have it all highlighted in orange when the window was open, and we have that to open here on the 19th. Now, interestingly, the 19th was the day when the swallows were supposed to return to Capistrano, you know, every year, March 19th. Right. Well, it's just coincidental. It also happens that uh, the, the the 20th, which is um, the day of the equinox, in the Baha'i faith, they recognize that as the first day of the year. I just learned about that a little while ago. And on my newsletter, I said I don't think it relates to an earthquake, but certainly the timing is there. Um, we have... Uh, Several things that people should do, not only informing their own family about the, what quakes can do and, and what they can't do, but um, you should have a contact person in some, oh, say Phoenix or Reno or someplace long away from the coast, 
if you're concerned about the timing of a quake so that you can relieve your own cares and concerns by knowing some place to contact. Maybe you're at the office and you, uh, you have the big quake, and where's your family? Are the kids at school? Somebody taking care of them. What do we do? So you, if your phone is working now, that'll be totally jammed up probably. But you, whenever you can, you get onto a phone and and call somebody in a, a safe area. Well, I we just had this terrible shake, and how's uh, how's my how's my wife doing? Did she, she called in? So they're a clearinghouse for such information, and that's sure. very it's very helpful to have such an ability to do that. Um, know that uh, you don't want to be on a you know an overpass when a big quake hits and um, but it's hard to avoid it you know I used to go along the San Andreas fault uh, at as my seismic window was, was open and I wasn't quite sure to hit the accelerator at the brake as going under an overpass um, but I do not let earthquakes control my life at all and the only one that ever scared me of 50, of 82 I have experienced was the World Series quake, and I predicted it, and I was about to leave the office, as most of my colleagues had already done, to rush off to see the World Series, and I was about, there were about three of us left in the whole floor, and I was about to get on the elevator when I went over and saw the phone, I said, you know, maybe there's been a foreshock I should know about, and I went over to phone the uh, Berkeley Seismographic Station, and I was uh, punching out the numbers. I had about two more numbers to go, and the quake hit. And it was a huge, you know, 7.1, the most I'd ever experienced. And the building rocked and bounced, and it was, uh, there were filing cabinets falling. And, and in my whole office, you couldn't see the floor anymore. All the books and rocks were on the floor. Uh, but I saved a big microfilm reader uh, from toppling off the floor as I was moving back and forth trying to stand up. And, of course, a number of people were hauling in the elevators. They were all stranded between the floors. And I had to go down the steps after about two minutes when the building stopped shaking. Tall buildings shake a lot longer. The, the ground itself near the epicenter only moved about 15 seconds. And can you imagine to have it shake for four minutes like it did with the, the quake in Sendai here in Japan? Uh, it was about three and a half minutes with the, <clears throat> the Anchorage quake in 64. Uh, so... Most of us can stand, you know, a few seconds of movement, and it doesn't bother us that much. But when it gets up to 30 seconds or a minute, that's when the dangerous times occur because uh, slightly weakened buildings will show their weakness much more clearly. You said that you are sensing not only a window in March, but also potentially something in April. Can you talk about that? Well, I send out to all of my subscribers in January of each year the, what I call the top window, the one the top window for each month. Yes. So it's March 8, 19 to 26, and April 17 to 25, both at the time of the full moon, both at the time when the moon is at perigee, and these create what are called perigean spring tides. To get a perigee near the closest of the moon on the same day as a syzygy, happens from two to five times a year. So these are always clear seismic windows. And then the other windows on the list, once for each month, uh, are much lesser concern. Although we can look ahead now to see a Parisian spring tide in, uh, let's see, 
book out here, September 27 to October 4, and October 24 to 31. And uh, so those are the four seismic windows of this year, the top windows. How do you know where they're going to occur? That's my question. Oh, that's a very good point. And that's the, the sun and moon position only tell me when. They do not tell me where or how big. And that's when I rely upon the animals and the hot springs and the geysers and the sensitive people and uh, sometimes the buildup of radon gas. Um, so that tells you adds to the the, the, the uh, your certainty that something is likely to happen. Now, it never do you really know for certain, and I've I've been wrong, you know, about twenty five percent of the time. And um, this is this time I'm giving this a ninety percent chance for a quake of three point five to six point five, hit uh, within one hundred forty miles of Los Angeles within 140 miles of San Francisco and in the states of Washington, Oregon. And we just had a whole rash of small quakes up in uh, uh, southern Oregon and, and northern California, up to 5.0 in the 4.6, 4.5, 4.4. And as an example of where not to worry, and yet there's a lot of uh, scare tactics out there, is um, Arkansas. They have had a whole rash of quakes up over the last couple of years, I mean, hundreds of quakes, and uh, very unusual, and the, the maximum about 4.7 last month. And so the word was going out, oh boy, the whole central part of the U.S. is about to uh, explode or cause a huge quake like in 1811, 1812 in New Madrid, Missouri. And so once I got the facts, I said, don't worry about that, because these quakes are artificially caused by people, by drillers because they're doing hydrofracturing, freeing uh, gas, natural gas from the shales down about uh, two miles deep. And um, sure enough, they're centered right, on, right around where they're doing the drilling in the central Arkansas. And so the same thing happened in Colorado in the early 60s. And one geologist back there said, uh, you know, Denverites never felt a quake before, or more, more than a little tiny one, and they had up to 5.5. It did some damage back there. He said, you know, that's the same time they've been getting drilling these big holes here at uh, Rocky Flats and getting rid of uh, chemical warfare waste that they were not evaporating nicely. They're just inserting these deep holes and uh, figuring out a sight out of mind, and then the quakes began to develop. So the high science said... Uh, Come on, yeah. we're just drilling holes and putting fluids in the ground. That that is not affecting these earthquakes. It's like saying we could raise the Rockies with an eyedropper. And so these comments come out, and this geologist almost lost his, his job. Uh, but they had to shut down the uh, big pumps for maintenance, and then the earthquake stopped. And after about a month, they started up the pumps again, and after a few days, the quakes began again. And then the powers that be said, oh, we thought so all the time. It's perfectly logical. And that has become, since the oh, mid-60s now, that's become known, as has the fact that large reservoirs can trigger quakes because uh, the weight of the water and the infiltration of the water into the deep flow allows faults to slip. And this was poo-pooed for years and years until finally they got enough records showing that areas of a new filling of dams after the reservoir had uh, been filled 
the quakes that began, and some of them are damaging quakes over six magnitude, where they hadn't had quakes before. So that's another bit of common knowledge. Now, it won't be long before people will look at the phase of the moon and say that odds go up for a quake in a seismically active area. And, uh, and then if they were bold enough, they would start paying attention to the animals as well. So this is, you know, part of the story. And it's interesting, I could not publish on this myself. I, I, I submitted papers to uh, international meetings, and uh, generally they're rejected. You know, so that's astrology. We're, you're looking at the moon, and we're looking at the earth. Well, I'm looking at both. This is all about new knowledge, really. It's all about the fear of new knowledge and people being invested in something and it being rendered antiquated or not useful anymore or not effective or have gotten to the level at which it was in use and no longer productive anymore. I've reached the age of 80, and so I don't care what my critics say anymore because they're the ones that have the problem. I agree with you. Can you talk a little bit about the Madrid fault line? New Madrid, yeah. They New Madrid. Like talk it. about that. There's a big concern about this now. Well, it, it, it's uh, in 1811, 1812, beginning on December 16th of 1811, a huge quake, and you see various readings. It, almost certainly it was at least an eight-magnitude quake. It rang bells in Boston and, was, and felt in, um, in uh, all across the East Coast. Um and it caused the Mississippi River to flow backwards for a while as a big wave swept up. And uh, there was an early steamboat coming down the Ohio River. It just entered the uh, Mississippi, and all of a sudden it was back in the Ohio. <laughs> and uh, oh, many Indian villages were flooded, and uh, there hardly any population out there. You know, James Audubon was there and wondered why his horse suddenly stopped. And, and uh, he got off the horse to see if it hurt his foot or something, and then the quake hit. Um, it, uh, and then it again happened. There were three big ones. And amazingly, um, a geologist from USGS wrote a paper, Bulletin 494, in 1912, 100 years after the big quakes down there in New Madrid. And I'd finally gotten a copy of this book, and it was on my desk in the office. And a fellow said, oh, I've been wanting to see that book. Uh, can I borrow it? And I said, oh, well, okay, I really only just started it. Uh, next week he came back and he said, did you get to page 35? And I said, no. Well, look at there. And there's a table showing the phase of the moon. And he said, six of the seven large earthquakes occurred at the time of the newer full moon. Now, I, And that was written in 1912. And my younger colleagues uh, apparently haven't looked at the literature. People are scared of it. I'll tell you, they're probably scared of it because it's not in their paradigm. That's part of it. Yes, I've, I've seen, you know, people say, oh, you're the one that predicts earthquakes, and I get that they kind of back away from me a little bit. But that reaction has much lessened in recent years. I'll bet it has. Uh-huh. And also peer pressure keeps these people back. The peer pressure yeah. is immense. Oh, it's yeah. It's probably its own gravitational field. So about this New Madrid fault line, what does this mean to us today? It's, uh, they only happen, big quakes there, maybe three or 400 years based on trenching and observation of uh, geologic features from past earthquakes. So it's very rare there. It's, there's no active fault there, but there is a zone that extends up towards the northeast into Illinois and uh, along the Illinois River. Um, the last really large earthquake down there was 1895 in a seismic window, and that was about a, a six point. Um, 
So I, I have no great concern right now about mid, the Midwest, except that they almost have all these brick buildings and brick chimneys and, uh, and a large unawareness of what the hazards can be with uh, you know, tiles and, and bricks and, uh, and lack of, of wooden houses, which are very flexible and forgiving. So um, it, it doesn't hurt to watch what's happening. Now, you know, in 1990, there was a, a warning about uh, earthquakes in the New Madrid area, and a, an astronomer, uh, meteorologist, said, said there was going to be a big one in that December. It turned out to be very, very high tides in early December of 1990. And I was aware of his prediction about a year earlier, but I didn't pay any attention to it because I recognize that I can't predict for a particular area a year in advance, and that's what he was doing. And he just said, I guess, that he figured that the Madrid area was due. Well, it turns out that about uh, in October, there was about a five-magnitude quake not too far from New Madrid, so everybody thought he was right on. But when the, And I was being interviewed by Unsolved Mysteries, and they wanted to hear about my t talk about the animals and the, the quake of uh, October 89. And then they said, well, what do you think about this uh, big quake do, do in New Madrid? And I said, I don't believe it. I'd give it less than one-half of 1% chance of it happening because uh, <clears throat> you have to have local clues from the animals or seepage of uh, springs and change in temperature and radon gas and that sort of thing. And there, there had been nothing like that that I knew about. So um, they immediately stopped the interview and so and i talked with the people and brought up their their pet dogs and we talked about the horse that had shied at the corral and all that and we were right on the scene but they didn't use it all it ended up on the, uh, the cutting room floor cutting room floor left there but oh. let me ask you this there is a way isn't there to look at the tides into the future based on where they are now or is it not really oh no you can get the from the uh National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I actually rely on a calendar that's produced every year, and you can get it, the tide factors for any place in the world. Well, mostly around North America. So I have it for Southern California, and I could just give out the number if I wanted to get people to get their own tides. Sure. It That'll shows be... the daily ranges in tides, and um, let's see, internet orders and info at www.tidelines. T-I-D-E-L-I-N-E-S dot com. And you can get uh, your calendar for maybe $20, and uh, and they'll sell you, uh, send along with it a, a little one. Uh, instead of a big wall calendar, a little pocket calendar that shows you the same things. And you can get them for San Francisco, Monterey, Morro Bay, Santa Barbara, Los Angeles. So you have to get them in a particular area, correct? You order whichever you want, yeah. And they go work to Hawaii. And uh, up and down the East Coast. Of course, the tides are larger along the Pacific Coast. The, 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 down in the Gulf, they're very small, just as they are in the mid-Pacific. The tide ranges are very small. They largely depend upon the local topography, and that's why they just had the, you know, the really great damage in uh, Crescent City. They have like a funnel-shaped topography offshore, and it just normal tide uh, would maybe be uh, five feet high, and suddenly it's channeled upward into 20 feet or more. So um, the uh, you can see on these 
the wiggly lines every day going up and down and during the neap tide periods when there's not much variation. It's usually in between the, the newer full moon. And then if you see perigee approaching the newer full moon, you'll see the tides getting more and more extreme. And uh, I see here, looking at the end of December this year, uh, the maximum tide goes top of the the date and the bottom is right down to a minus. So, in uh, typically in the Golden Gate, a tide on a neap tide period is a uh, ranges between four and four and a half feet between high and low. Then, as you approach a syzygy, it'll be seven feet, and if it's a syzygy perigee, it's usually over eight feet to a maximum ever of nine point two feet, and uh, that's what happened in. 1974, on the date that I had uh, first become aware of the importance. Well, I'll be guessing get a phone call here in a couple of minutes. Indeed. So. Jim, I really want to thank you for taking this impromptu call and for sharing yourself on its rainmaking time and making yourself available. And thank you for all the years of work that you've been doing and the new knowledge that you're bringing through to everybody. And I really want to commend you for your courage and your diligence to stay with it no matter what, no matter who jokes about this or thinks it's a joke and doesn't understand that it's part of new knowledge. Thank you so much. And get the book. Yes, we're definitely going to get the book. And also, can you tell us your website address? Yes, Syzygy Job, S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y, J-O-B, my initials, at AOL.com, SyzygyJob.com, my website. S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y-J-O-B.com. Exactly. Fantastic. Aligning up sun, moon, and earth. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Very good. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.